Good evening, everybody. I'm Pej. I'm a grateful member of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's good to be here tonight. I want to thank uh, I want to thank Anna for asking me to speak at this meeting. This is actually um, it's an honor and a privilege to speak in any meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, but this one is a historical meeting. This is like one of the oldest meetings in Orange County. To my knowledge, it's like as old as Gucci, almost as old as Gucci. And, and um, when you talked about happy birthday to you, happy birthday to both the birthday people, when you talked about Patio, Patio used to tell me about this meeting. He used to have like three or 400 people that would show up for it. And then legacies came along. <laughs> Who her son actually started. But it's all good. I mean, this is... Um, a lot of self-reflection going on lately. A lot of stuff going on in my life. Good stuff. All good stuff. Um, I want to thank my friend Arvin for showing up in shorts and speaking tonight. <laughs> it's a total miracle. There's a bunch of miracles that are sitting in this room. All of your miracles were all miracles, right? Um, some of you heard my story, so I'll try to tell a different version. Uh, I have a home group, a couple of home groups. Uh, one of them is in Los Angeles. It is the Fledgling Society. Uh, it's usually at this time on Sunday night, so I'm always there. Um, and then I have another home group that's at the Canyon Club on Tuesday nights. It's called the Monks and Drunks Meeting. Uh, you can zoom on in or come on down. It's at 7.30 p.m. on Tuesday nights. That's a really good meeting, too. Very solution-based. Um, I have a sponsor. His name is Earl Hightower. I have a sobriety date of June 16, 2007. Um, I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I never thought I would be that guy to talk that way. Um, I'm a Persian man that was born in Germany and raised in Salt Lake City, Utah. So if you were me, you'd want to drink too. <laughs> Kelly's from Utah too. Uh, growing up in Utah was really interesting. Uh, I was brown, they were white, and we were Muslim and they were Mormon. Again, if you were me, you'd want to drink too. And uh, I did get bullied a lot for my nationality and my skin color. Um, not by everybody, but just by a certain group of people that just had a way of being. And, and so uh, I gravitated towards people that, were out, that felt like outcasts too. Um, I, I was taking sips off of my dad's cognac and beers at a very young age, probably like seven or eight years old. Just little sips here and there. I was also the kid that was over in the corner, like doing the dizzy thing, you know, like when you just go in circles, so you fall down. And when my dad would give me those little sips, like I'd fall down a lot faster. Um, I, you know, one kid pulverized me. He beat me up so bad in front of the whole school that my braces that were in my mouth got caught into my gums, but I was out cold. And when I came to, I was bludgeoned, beaten, and I staggered all the way home. And uh, I just remember thinking like, I'll, I'll never let somebody humiliate me like that again. And when I got home, uh, my mother looked terrified. My dad had, he was angry that I didn't protect myself. And I felt like he was punishing me because the next day he had me outside of the house, painting the side of the house. And I had these two big black eyes and I was seething. I was so angry already. I couldn't stand that kid Van Stone that did that to me, that embarrassed me in front of everybody. I couldn't stand my father. I couldn't stand the whole state of Utah. I put the whole state on my fourth step, my first fourth step. And, um, <laughs> I remember I was 12 years old and I was told we're going to a Persian wedding. And on this particular night, uh, 
I wasn't enthused to be at this wedding, but I do remember being there and seeing that everybody was mingling and dancing and having a really good time and they were drinking and they were drinking alcohol and uh, lots of it. And they, they weren't drinking all of their alcohol. They were leaving a lot of it half drank on the tables. Of course, the alcoholic in the making would observe this and see it. And I'm thinking, like, I'm so bored. I looked at the clock. And I'm like, how am I going to get the next four hours of my life back? And, and I went around and I, I took a little whiff off one of their drinks. And then I took a little sip. And as it went down into my stomach, I remember that, ah, that sense of ease and comfort, like just a sensation. And I thought, I got to have more of this. And I drank, I drank it. I drank all of their undrank glasses. Right? And, uh, and the next thing you know, I was out on that dance floor and I was... Uh, I was the life of the party. I was break dancing. I was pop locking. I was doing all kinds of moves, right? <laughs> moves that I didn't even know I knew how to do. And by the end of the night, they said that the wedding's over. My dad said, come on, we're going, get in the car. And I'm like, what? We just got started. Are you kidding me? And I remember going home and sitting in the backseat of the car and just, I had my own little party. I was slurring my words and my mom and dad were giggling and chuckling in the front seat. Look at Pez. She's on a good one. And they took me home and they, stuck me in my bed and I blacked out instantly. And, and uh, I experienced my first blackout. And, I, and during that blackout, I wet the bed and I puked the bed and I woke up the next morning and I thought, ah, I've arrived. I must do this over and over again. I ch chased that feeling for a long time. And um, we used to come to California all the time on vacation. I love California. You know, when I was, if you live in a cold, miserable state like Salt Lake City, Utah, and you come out to California, it's like paradise. It's like, I don't really notice the palm trees or think about the beach much, but back then coming here, it was like, we're going to California. Like it's the spot. And um, we'd go to Los Angeles. I had some cousins that lived up there and just had a lot of fun. And I used to beg and plead with my dad, please dad, like what, what will it take for us just to move to California? He's to LA. Right. And he said one day he, when I was 15 years old, he said he got a job opportunity in LA. And, and so my dreams were answered and sure enough, we're, we're coming out here and I, you know, I'm on this plane and my dad must have thought the whole state of California was LA because we didn't go to Los Angeles. We, we ended up in the big old city of Costa Mesa. And, but it was cool because I was 15 and a half years old, a sophomore in high school. And I walked into my, into my high school campus and I looked around and I was like, well, this is good. I mean, there's like Browns and Mexicans and blacks and all different types of people, Persians too, even a few of my own kind, right? And um, I got this job opportunity to work at McDonald's on Harbor Boulevard. And I'm flipping burgers. And on my very first day, this, this Mexican dude named Carlos tells me, are you new in town? I'm like, yeah, I'm new in town. He goes, well, listen here, I say, after work, you want to go throw a few back and go smoke some weed? I'm like, absolutely I do. And he took me to this place at the end of Harbor Boulevard. It was, uh, it was called the Motor Inn. And we get there and he tells me to sit on these stairs and he's going to go up in a room and he, he goes up in this room and I watched like the room that he went into and I was waiting for so long that finally when I was done waiting I went and knocked, I started banging on the door and um, the door swung open and there was this lady that was standing there with a crying baby in her hands and her body looked like she was 35 years old but her face looked like she was 65 like toothless snaggle tooth looking the baby's crying there's a kid playing in the front room and I'm like excuse me where, where's Carlos and she said well, he's back there in the kitchen. You can go back and talk to him. And I couldn't see the kitchen. There was like some clothes that were drawn between the kitchen and this front room. So I just went back there and I walk in and I like see a bunch of stuff on the table, things that I only saw in Miami Vice, right? 
I'm like, Carlos, what are you doing? He's like doing something over in the corner. He's like, oh, I say, I forgot about you here. Let me break you off real quick. And he gave me some alcohol and he gave me some weed and I smoked it and I drank it. And then I looked at my watch and oh my God, it's late. Like I, I, I gotta get home. I'm 15, right? Like my mom's gonna kill me. So I'm running down Victoria Boulevard. And by the time I get to my house, I'm thinking, how am I gonna sneak into this house with my house without my parents waking up, right? And like a ninja in the night, I climbed up this tree very quietly. I got on my roof and I put one leg into my window and the other leg in and I got into my room. I'm thinking no one's gonna wake up and I'm looking for the light because it was so dark. And when I found the light switch, I turned it on and my mom was sitting in my bed, wide awake with that look that our mothers get on the floor. Son, where, where have you been? Why are your eyes so red? Wait till your dad deals with you in the morning. Instilling that fear that my father, you know, he was the rageaholic. And so the next morning, they sat me down and they had a little come to Jesus conversation. You know, like in the book, it says frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. You had so much potential. Like, why are you doing this to yourself? It appears that we've moved to the wrong side of town. We need to put you in a different school, right? So they sent me and my sister to a whole new school for a better education. And mind you, I'm turning 16, like barely turning 16 years old at this point. And this is like the high school era. Like this is all, all the stuff I saw in the movies like the high school party, it's happening now. And there was this dude, his name was Omid and this other guy, Amir. And these were my boys, right? Like Omid in our language, in the, far, in the Persian language means hope. And there was no hope for Omid, right? But, <laughs> but, but Omid, had, he had this Nissan Sentra and it was lowered and it was cherry red. And we would bump the NWA and the EZE and just roll around town. And, and I remember uh, Somebody would, we'd hear about so-and-so's parents were leaving on the weekend. And so we're going to go to their, to their party at their house. And we're driving, you know, just caravanning around town. Everybody like, just, you know how it was. I know some of you guys know. And we, we, I tell them, like, let's stop at this liquor store real quick and get some alcohol. Well, how are we going to buy it? Watch this. And we'd watch them scrub walking in and I go, hey, dude, excuse me. If I give you some money and some extra money, will you buy me a pack of cigarettes and some booze? And he's like, sure, no problem. There we go, score. Dude walks in and he gets some peppermint schnapps or some JD or something in my pack of cigarettes and, and we're, it's, it's on and pop it now. Like now we're in the car and we're drinking and you know we're ready to go to this party. And by the time we get to the party, everybody's lined up at the kegger and I'm already nice and sauced. You know? And you get that alcohol in you, like it's that, that nectar of the gods, that liquid courage. Like now you can't, I'm untouchable. I got my boys with me. I'll talk, you know, we might have a nice alcoholic brawl tonight, right? Anybody want to get down like that? Or I'll talk to her and she may be way out of my league, but for some reason I have all the right words, right? I might get slapped in my face or I might actually score, right? And that's just, my alcoholism was taking form. And um, I knew nothing about the peculiar mental twist. We started going down to Mexico, to Tijuana. Uh, we got fake IDs and we would go to... Uh, certain clubs, I'm sure some of you frequented, but uh, there, was, <laughs> there was this one club that we would go to. I, I, we caught wind of the fact that there was no last call for alcohol down there, right? Like that, that didn't exist. So we could just drink all night long. The problem was there was episodes that came like alcoholic episodes. And I, I told my friends like on this, on this Friday night that we were driving down, I listen guys, like last week we drove down here and, and you guys bought me those poppers and do me a favor. Do not buy me the poppers because you know what happens? Like all bets are off. Like low key, I wanted them to buy me the poppers so I wouldn't have to pay for the booze. So the second we get up in the club, I sit down and already the dude comes from behind the waiter and puts the curve on my mouth. And 
shoves it in my mouth, makes me drink it, shakes my head around, and you get like five of those in you, and bad stuff really starts happening, right? I woke up in the gutter one time right outside the club. I'm like, I must have got 86 from this place. Another time I woke up at the backseat of the federalities car and I was being taken to jail. And I passed out again and woke up in Mexican jail. And if you knew back then, like you didn't want to get locked up down in Mexico because you may never get out. You may never get out. This is like a known thing. And um, so my alcoholism was, this is like where my alcoholism was starting to take me. When I was 17 years old, I got a driver's license. Um, finally, a year late, right? And my dad gave me this 1971 Super Beetle yellow bug. And um, I, I had drank the night before, so I was really hung over the next morning. But I was so excited. I called all my friends. I said, today I'm picking all you guys up. Like, I have my own car. I'm so happy. So you know, just like excited to go and pick all these guys up. So individually, I picked everybody up. We're all in the car. The music's blaring. We're driving up the street. It had rained the night before, so the streets were still slick. And um, just doing like a bunch of high school kids just having a good morning on our way to school. And out of nowhere, some like 14-year-old kid came right out of the street on his bike, darted right out right in front of my car and I couldn't hit the brakes fast enough. And the kids, his body, his body and his bike went over the top of my car into the windshield and the windshield shattered and the car crashed into a minivan and this kid's body was flung over the minivan head first straight into the ground. And my whole world went into slow motion and I got out and I looked at all my friends in the car and they all had blood all over their faces from the broken windshield. And it was just like the wreckage of that. And then I went and looked around the side of the minivan and I thought, oh my God, is he dead? And his, he was laying face down with blood gushing out the top of his head. And the police came and an ambulance came and the ambulance whizzed him off to the hospital. And he didn't die that day. His, his mom kept him on life support for four days, but took him off uh, because he had extensive brain damage. He would have been a complete vegetable. And police took, they asked me a lot of questions and they released me. And I just remember for the next two or three months, four months, I was, uh, this angry young man that felt like God had dealt me a bad hand. Like why? Like out of all the kids in my whole entire student body, why me? Like why'd that happen to me? And um, started getting into a lot of trouble, causing a lot of crimes. I was a defiant, angry, young, combative man. And um, I found my way into a few different holding cells. And then finally I stood in front of a juvenile judge and he told me, Mr. Alagamanda, we don't see you fit to be on the streets of Orange County, you're a complete menace to society. You've accumulated all of these crimes in the last few months. And on top of that, you have a vehicular manslaughter charge without gross negligence. Therefore, you're going to juvenile hall for one year. And um, remember when I went into juvie, I, I was uh, put into boys receiving. And my very first night, I had a complete meltdown. And they decided to transfer me to another unit called uh, Unit L, which was like the psych portion of this this particular place. And um, there's things that I saw in there that I could never erase from my mind. Um, they had me on suicide watch the first couple of weeks because of things I said, I guess. And so I had to sit in a cell with, with nothing on except for my draws. And um, remember just thinking like, there's no such thing as God. Like, the, like, why would God do this to me? I was somewhat of a normal student not that long ago. And why would God do that to the kid? He didn't even know he was gonna die that day, right? So I renounced God. I stopped believing completely. Like I just, I went from, I was an atheist for a little bit to an agnostic because I wasn't sure. And, uh, and I don't even know, I think the way that I learned that, that term agnostic was because on Saturday mornings, we had the opportunity to get out of our cell and go down into this room and listen to this old man that would pull out this big blue book and start reading out of it. And it was the book of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
And um, he was carrying the message already at, at the age of 17. He was carrying a message. And unfortunately, even though the seed was planted and it was a weak seed, nonetheless, it was still a seed. Um, I was still hip, slick and cool. I still had a lot of mileage on me and I wasn't ready to receive any kind of message. Uh, my mom was on the outs and she was writing letters and doing petitions just to try to get me out sooner. And she got me out on good behavior after a few months. In that time, my parents were going through a divorce, which really messed with me. I wasn't happy about this. Our family was very dysfunctional, but I did not want to be the child of divorced parents. And I was starting to turn 18. And, you know, like alcoholism was, it was, it was bad. It was starting to get really bad, but it wasn't to the point where where the wreckage was being created. I tried to stay between my parents' houses. Um, I would be at my mother's house. It wasn't working out. I'd go to my dad's house. I'd get in an argument with them. And finally, my dad moved away. My mother moved to LA. And, um, and here I was, this 18-year-old kid, still wet behind the ears with no home training, trying to survive in the world with no guidance from any type of figure, male figure, anything like that. And so I, I did what I knew how to do best. I started selling drugs, and that was just a way of life. And because um, I tried to work in the workplace and I couldn't do that. I couldn't afford life, especially being an active alcoholic and addict. There's no way. There's just no way I had to do what I did to get where I was getting. And um, it started to get really bad into my late 20s. I would I love the effect that was produced by alcohol, crystal meth, heroin, cocaine. These were a few of my favorite things, but I did not know about this the strange mental blank spots. I would convince, I would convince myself, I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm going to quit. I'll quit on this particular day. And the next thing you know, I'm loaded over and over and over again. And, um, you know, by the time I was 30, I had a, a major interaction with some police in riot gear that showed up to a garage and raided the place and took me in. And I was in Theo Lacey jail. Same place you were at, Hotel Theolacy, right? And I, I remember, um, I mean, I, just, I did this. This was the 90s. So, like, we didn't have people that were overdosing on fentanyl. We liked doing the love drugs. Like, we loved doing this, the fast stuff that would keep you up for days and days and weeks and weeks and months, right? I didn't sleep the entire 90s. So, by the time I get locked up, I'd be incarcerated. I'd just sleep it off, sleep for days and days, right? I slept for so many days that some dude came through and they said, Haitian Eyes coming through. Anybody want to hear a message of hope? And I'm like, Haitian Eyes. What does that stand for? Homies and inmates? He's like, no, fool. It's Alcoholics Anonymous. Get off your, get off that rack and come over here and listen to these two guys. So I get off and I was like, it's groggy and tired. And I sat down and these two dudes walked in and they were so well put together. Button up shirts, like sitting down and they start telling their story. I'm like sitting in a circle with all the other inmates that wants it to go, right? And I'm looking at these dudes and they're talking about their stories. And I'm thinking, oh, you know, these guys look pretty well put together. Like, what, what's wrong with them? Like. Like why, like, why do they come down? Are they bored? Like, they come down here to tell us how they couldn't hold their liquor? Like, what's wrong with them? I'm not thinking that every single solitary time that I end up in jails, institutions, or near-death experiences is because it surrounds itself around my alcoholism and the bad decisions that I make when I'm inebriated or under the influence or annihilated, all that stuff. And um, so I got out of there, and I tried to go to my mom and try to stay at her house, and she wasn't having it. And, she took me to this this Persian sober living in Huntington Beach. And when I got there, this little Yoda looking recovery Persian guy answered the door. His name was Sia. And he looked at me 
And he said, hello, how are you doing? Welcome. This is sober living. We have rules, we have regulations, we have chores, we go to meetings. And I just looked at him, I'm like, what's your name? And he goes, my name is Sia. I'm like, not interested, Mr. Sia. I didn't stay at his house. And I went to this other guy's house. And Costa Mesa, his name was Dave Regal. God rest his soul. He's no longer with us. But Dave was one of them AA Nazis. Like, there was, I couldn't get nothing over on that guy, right? He, just, he looked at me and said, you keep your jailhouse mentality in the jailhouse. When you're in my house, you go to one meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous every day. And so now I was sentenced to Alcoholics Anonymous by Dave Regal. And I would go begrudgingly to these meetings down at the Newport Club. Back then, it was upstairs. There was these uh, leather couches and you could smoke in the room. And I just, I'm Mr. Contemporary Investigation. I'd sit in the room with my arms crossed and just look at people and be like, I'll never share here. I will never identify as an alcoholic. Anybody like that? If you want to call on me, you just pass, like next one, right? Uh, I go by the name Brian in here. Like I, nobody needs to know who I am. And, and, um, and then one day my friend said, Pej, why do you go to those meetings? Like, you know that you can sign your own court card, right? I'm like, you can? How? How's that? He goes, because because your, pro, your probation officer doesn't know the secretary of the meeting. It's anonymous. I'm like, oh, my God, you're right. So I started signing my own court card, and it, and it kept me out of AA. And, uh, you know, between the age of 30 and 35 years old, I did a really good job of running my life into the ground. Um, by the time I was 35 years old, I tried to go dry out on my friend Amir's couch. Same Amir from years before. And, um, and he was a mad alcoholic. Like, he never made it to these rooms. He drinks to this day. He did a lot of other stuff, too. Like, put stethoscopes, stethoscopes on and listen to the wall. Because they were listening to watch. <laughs> but I went to Amir's house. I tried to dry out. And, and a series of events happened when I was at his house. Like, my version of detox was don't do meth, heroin, and coke. But you can still drink and smoke weed. That's not detoxing. That's taking a break from heavy drugs, right? But I'm still drinking, right? So the book talks about, um, we can go on to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation or to accept spiritual help. And so I did what every so-called gangster does when they run out of options. I called my mommy and she was in Al-Anon too and she wasn't having it anymore. She was armed with the facts of Al-Anon, right? Thank you, Lois. Um, and she, she just she wasn't letting me, she didn't want to talk to me. She put me in the hands of a man that, that led me to this house in Irvine, California on June 16th, 2007. Um, I went around the corner from that house at this park. I finished everything I had down to the last drink and drop and morsel, whatever, everything. I finished it all. And when I showed up to the house, I knocked on this door and lo and behold, it was a little Persian guy from five years before, Sia, little Yoda. <laughs> It's like, hello, how are you doing? I'm like, oh my God, I know you. You know, like, didn't you have a house in Huntington Beach? Like I came to your house, remember that? He's like, I had the house, I don't remember you. And I'm like, how do you not remember me? Like, yeah. you, like it's, it's, it's five years ago. It's like, I remember the ones that stayed. I'm like, oh, okay, fair enough. I remember walking into his house and I'm like, listen, just, just so we're clear. If I'm going to live in your house, like I don't believe in God, right? Like you guys don't be talking about God in this house, right? He goes, we don't talk about God very much. I'm like, okay, good enough. Another thing is I don't go to meetings. Like I don't like 12 step meetings. I don't like AA, CA, any, none of that stuff. We don't go to meetings, right? We don't go to many meetings. We went to two meetings every single day from that day on. So he wasn't really working on his program. So, but I remember he would send us to this meeting in Irvine. It was called the Alton Noon meeting. It was a lot of old timers, right? And I remember walking up in there and just thinking, 
oh my God, it's come to this. Like I see, all, it was just an ocean of white hair. I was like, this is like a ton of old people. Like I, sorry, Tom, but <laughs> I think, I think just, just for men works too. <laughs> but I, I walked into this room. I'm like, this sucks. Like I, I was already Mr. Inventory Taker. I'm, I'm Mr. Contempt prior to investigation. I walk in with my arms crossed, just angry. Like, what do we got here? I look around over by this one wall. There was a, just a row of these old dudes, right? And they called them the Romeos. To me, like they looked like they were in their last dying days. But it, it turns out that they were truly like the sweethearts of the group. And they were the elder statesmen. Like they carried a strong message of Alcoholics Anonymous, right? I come, like, I thought they were all judging me. And they didn't like me. They, some of them ended up becoming my best friends. One of them to this day still calls me every year on my birthday. It's, it's amazing, right? And then, so anyway, I'm sitting in this room and there was always that one guy. You know, the one guy that likes to share every single day, like every single meal. And I'm just, I'm just sitting there, just my head saying this, here he goes. He's raising his hand again. He's going to share again. Same shit as yesterday. Like we've heard this, I could like recite his word for him, word for word verbatim. Oh, and he loves to say hallelujah at the end because he thinks it sounds cute. He just likes to hear himself talk. Oh, here she goes, right? I love when she shares. She's so beautiful. She's so hot. This is the only time I can take a look at her and just stare at her without seeming like a creeper, right? And then it happened. One day I'm sitting in the room. It was on a Wednesday, a birthday day. All the people that only come once a year for their, remember, I'm the inventory taker. They don't ever come any other day except for to take their birthday, right? They're all done. And then some dude in the back of the room raises his hand and I'm laser focused. Like, who's that? We haven't heard from this guy. What's this guy got to say, right? <laughs> and this guy busted out in some funny, profound, solution-based share. Like this share just, it was so good. I was just enthralled. I was like, wow. And it, it, I felt like his, his share just reached into my chest and gripped my heart without my consent. And I, I started busting out from the bottom of my belly like a little kid. I hadn't laughed so hard since I was a little kid. And I realized right then, like, damn, I need to be here. Like I, that was the language of the heart that was being spoken in there. And on that particular day, I just happened to be in the right place at the right time to hear the right thing and make this decision that I need to be an AA. I need to be a member of this group. I need to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and a grateful one at that. So I was gleeful. I was tickled with recovery. I, I ran back to the, like we went back in the, in the druggy buggy to the house. I ran into the house and I told Sia, Sia, like, I, I love AA. I love AA. What do I got to do? He's like, what happened today? Like, I, there was a guy he shared the meeting. It was so good. Like, I, I, I can't wait till we go to the meeting tomorrow. He's like, well, just so you know, Peg, you know that little saying that they say in AA about meeting makers make it? That's not necessarily true. There's a lot of people that go to make meetings that don't make it, right? So there's a lot more to do. That's the fellowship. Like, you're enjoying the fellowship. That's great. But I already told you, you need to have a sponsor with the working knowledge of the book, and you need to have him by next week. And so he put me to the test. And if I didn't do it, I would have got some consequences because that was that type of house, right? A lot of writing assignments there. So I got the sponsor. His name was Amir at the time. Amir was such a good man. I mean, he was so, so when I'd hear him in meetings, I would just think, wow, man, that, that guy right there, like, I like the way he shares. I like his aura. I like everything about him. He spoke the program. He lived the program. His essence was the program. And um, when I asked him to be my sponsor, he would come and he'd pick me up and He'd either take me to a coffee shop or we'd go to a park or sometimes we'd sit in the backyard and we'd go through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And page by page, line by line, word by word, just like we did today, right? And he broke that book down for me. I mean, there was stuff that when he would speak, 
I just think, how does he know all this stuff? But over a period of time, I started to realize it's because he had a sponsor that took him through the book at one time. Thank you so much. That took him through the book at one time too. And we, ha- we went through the process of the steps. I didn't know what I was getting into. You know, uh, I really wanted to work my steps really fast. He told me it's not a race. Um, but in steps one, two, and three, you know, I had to know that there was a problem. You know, the lack of power was my dilemma. I made alcohol and drugs my, my higher power. I'd do anything for those things, right? And all my talents were right out the window whenever I get loaded. You know, so when I got to step two, I had to make I, I, the solution was to find a power that'll relieve me of the obsession to drink and use, that'll restore me to sanity and give me soundness of mind. You know, and in, in the third step, I turned my will and my life over to something that I wasn't really sure what it was. I wasn't a believer of God. But for some reason, Amir was in love with a higher power, with God. He called it God. And, and in the way that he was in love with it, that was the attraction rather than the promotion. And I needed to get out of my own way because I was playing God constantly in my life, all throughout my life. All my decision making was based off of self-reliance. So I come into this program and I want to have these you know, this, this hang up, like be on the fence with the whole God idea. Really like it wasn't serving me. So I'd sit in meetings and I'd hear about other people's experiences with their higher power. And people would talk about hitting their knees. And so I started hitting my knees. I followed suit Not right away. My friend Farbod put me to the test. One day he told me, Pesh, do you pray? We went to the morning meeting at the Canyon Club one morning. And we went to Starbucks down in, in uh, Main Beach. He said, do you pray? I said, yeah, I pray. He goes, how do you pray? I go, well, you know, sometimes when I'm in rehab, I lay in my bed and I pray until I fall asleep. He's like, that's lazy. I'm like, what do you mean lazy? He goes, why don't you get on your knees? I go, why would I get on my knees? I don't even think I really believe in this thing. He goes, I'll put you, like, I challenge you. Just get on your knees on a daily basis. Make it a mandatory practice and watch what happens. I said, but far, but I feel like I'm praying to the ground or to the wall. He goes, you think you're the first person that said that around here? Just try it out. I, I used to say that to my sponsor too. Try it. Make it a mandatory practice. So I started getting all I need. And good things started to happen. I mean, talk, I'm talking like within two weeks, I started feeling different. It was like, I didn't come here. I, you know, I've came to Alcoholics Anonymous to find a God that was never really lost. And it wasn't like it was Sky Daddy. Something from in, within me was like this, this very powerful feeling where I thought something loves me. Something has brought me this far. And is allowing me to stay sober and is putting these beautiful people in my path. And it didn't come from me, right? It's, it's something. It's, got, it's some kind of a higher power. And for a long time, I made the group my higher power. And, and for a while, I even looked up to my sponsor as my higher power, right? Like, because I got to run it by him. I got to ask him. I got to constantly ask him. But, um, but over a period of time, I started to fall in love with, with my version of my higher power, which I, chose, I comfortably call God right now. And when I did a fourth step in the very beginning... Um, it talks about swallowing some large chunks of truth about ourselves. You know, I was full of resentments. I was full of anger, you know, and, and one of the things that I want, I, I would hear in meetings often that a lot of people go out because they're still resentful. What does it say in the book? Resentment is the number one offender um, from it uh, forms all different types of spiritual disease. It's the only place in the book that it really says the word disease, right? So I don't want to remain sick. And the fears, you know, like the only way that I was going to overcome my fears was through a loving God, through a higher power, because why would I continue to keep being afraid to do things or to, to like move forward, you know, and then you do the sex conduct and that, that right there, like I didn't do it thoroughly in the beginning. I acted out throughout my recovery and, and uh, I felt a lot of consequences as a result of doing that. Don't laugh. 
I sat with a sponsor and I read him my fifth step and it was the most powerful thing. I never felt God's presence so much in one room as, as reading in my first, fourth step, you know, in our home group right now, we, when we do uh, inventory, we do it as a group and we find people in the group that we don't really know. Some people read it to people that they do know. And uh, we read each other, our inventories. It's, there's nothing like doing a good inventory. I believe it's something that we should be an ongoing process because resentments still do constantly crop, crop up. Um, in six and seven, I, I have these defects of character. And what are these defects of character? Like, what are they, right? I believe they're, they're learned behaviors. They were my greatest protectors. In the 12 and 12 and in, in, in the seventh step, it says that fear is the chief activator of all of our defects of character. So they're all fear-based, all of them, anger, jealousy, gossip, all of that. It's all fear-based. I'm afraid to mind my own business. I'm afraid to be happy. I'm afraid to, to like stay in my own lane, all these different things. The only way I'm going to be able to overcome that is through a loving God. And I can't remove my defects of character. God can. Or I just remain in them. And they never really go away. I just become more aware. Um, the, the amends process was extremely powerful. I had to go and make amends. I had to go look people in the eye and tell them I was wrong. What can I do to make it right? We see a lot of people that relapse a lot of times. Some people with long timers, we see them, especially during pandemic. I saw, I had a lot of friends that had 20 and 25 years of recovery that went out. And um, I tend to wonder like, what was that? Like what happened? And I asked them and um, sometimes they didn't make all their amends. Sometimes they really hadn't surrendered completely to a higher power. You know, that's what, what I hear a lot. What happened? Like you weren't plugged in or any, anymore? No, I wasn't working with anybody. I took back my will. And I don't ever want to, like, I don't want to rest on my laurels. These aren't just sayings that we learn around here. These are things that happen. I don't want to become complacent, you know? And then step 10 on a daily basis, if I come short, I clean up where I mess up. Like I become aware of saying things that have offended. And I'll say, I'm sorry. I don't want to ever treat you bad. So I don't have to keep going back and doing four step. I'm doing that every single day. I continue to take personal inventory. And when I'm wrong, I promptly admit it, you know? And step 11, the prayer and meditation is... For me, it's a very powerful practice. You can meditate in so many different ways. When I meditate, I just try to quiet the mind and listen for the answers. And when I pray, I get on my knees so that I hear myself connecting to the higher source because God already hears me. Step 12 is, that's the one. Like, I don't think we don't, we really experience the magic of Alcoholics Anonymous until we start taking somebody else through the step process. Like, it's really nice to come and work the steps for me, to learn about me and figure out what was wrong with me. But when I do that and I develop this relationship with God and I'm, I get to step 12, I, I now I want to be of maximum service to God and his fellows. I don't want to be self-serving. I want to be altruistic. It's so nice to sit with my friend today with Mateo and with Carrie and read the book and go through that book. And there's words that we don't know what they mean. Or if we don't know what they mean, we look them up and we learn what they were trying. Thank you. What they were trying to convey to us in the first place. When Bill first wrote this book, it was within the first three years of his sobriety. Divinely, he wrote a book that saved countless lives. Millions of people have gotten their lives back in this program. You know, a few years ago, before the pandemic, I went out to go visit my friend Boo at the time he lived in Ohio. We went to Dr. Bob's house. Boo was like a, a history buff, and so am I. Like, when it comes to AA, I want to know who the founders were and why this thing works and how it, how it originated. And we got to go to Dr. Bob's house and we got to go to that hospital where um, <clears throat> Sister Ignatia used to give out medallions to the alcoholics in the alcoholic ward. 
we got to go to Henrietta Sieberling's house where she provided the space where Bill and Bob were first going to meet. We sat in the chairs where one alcoholic was talking to another alcoholic. They were only supposed to meet for 15 minutes, but they came together and they were together for five hours. Just imagine that two people were trying, one didn't want to drink. So he was hanging out with another one that was already drunk. And because of those two coming and learning how to stay sober and getting to alcoholic number three, this, this whole movement mushroomed, as the book says, right? Not that kind of mushroom. <laughs> so now, now we're in 2021 and we have all these people that are coming to Alcoholics Anonymous that are poly substance abusers. And we've got some people that shun them and tell them, if you're not a real alcoholic, you don't belong in AA. Bullshit. We do not pronounce anybody an alcoholic. Let them diagnose themselves, just like the book says. You've got a lot. This thing is so fatal. There's so many kids that, that come into our houses or into the centers I work in or that I in, interact with that are dying from fentanyl. And I'm going to sit there and tell them, like, you don't belong here. No, you do belong here. In our home group in L.A., we're OK with any substance. We, we, we want to take people through the steps of AA, right? This is the grandfather. This Alcoholics Anonymous is the grandfather of so many other 12-step groups. H.A. and C.A. use the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and they don't substitute words either. It's all about the program. It's about having this, this spiritual experience as a result of the steps and then going and helping the next one and the butterfly effect and the next one and the next one. You know, some, I, there's a lot of more recently, there's a lot of controversy in my life. There's some people that have formed opinions about me and um, because of my style of, of how I do things in my homes or who I am in this community and I don't care. I really don't care because I don't tolerate, like when I see that people are dying and overdosing in front of my own eyes, I have to be, I have to like be more strict than the average. You know, we baby the alcoholic, we bury the alcoholic. So I gotta be more serious about this thing because it's real and it's happened to us and it's gonna keep on happening. Thank you. Um, I have a relationship today with my mother that, She's such a good lady. She loves, she loves to interact with me. I, I just know like when we talk, she's so happy to have her son back. Um, we were at a funeral six, seven years ago for this little Persian dude that was uh, barely 18 years old that had already gone to prison for like six months and he overdosed and we're at this funeral and his mom was on the ground holding a portrait of him just screaming at the top of her lungs, just crying and saying, I'll never have my son back. And my mom happened to come to this funeral with me and she was standing next to me. And I remember she just grabbed my hand and gripped it really hard. And I thought to myself, she's, she's happy to have her son. She's happy to have her son. And so now we have these, you know, all these youngsters and a couple of oldsters that come into our houses and, and very similar situations, you know, a lot of their mothers are hovering helicopter moms that knew nothing about Al-Anon and, Thanks. And um, I just do for them that what was done for me and in hopes of them being able to get their lives back. And right now we got a plethora of young men that are that are changing their lives and they're effective. Some of them are working in the respective fields. Some of them are sponsoring men. These guys are people that were in comas as a result of overdoses or drink like drinking problems that are now alive. And they're, they're like out there, they're, they have a whole host of friends. They have camaraderie. They got the same thing that, that uh, 
Arvin was talking about, like I got groups of friends in AA all over this country. Anywhere I go, I could go sit in a room of Alcoholics Anonymous and be accepted and just listen, hear it, and hear that message being carried. I've been in Bethesda, Maryland, hearing the same message that I hear in Los Angeles, right? It's the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's what it's all about. I love, that's why in the beginning of, on top of this conversation, I said, I love Alcoholics Anonymous because it gave me my life back. Thank you.